0: Have you ever met anyone famous before? Do you remember how you acted, or what you said, or how you felt in that moment? I've told you all this before, but a number of years ago I had the opportunity to meet President George W. Bush, and I can safely say this is the most famous person that I have ever met. The famousness of a person is partly related to the crowd that follows him or her, but also to the security detail that this person has. And this, for a former president, he was recently former at that point, both the crowd and the security team were extensive. There was a general buzz of excitement, a nervousness in the air, a major awareness that what was about to take shape was not something that you had an everyday experience of. So in light of that, how would you respond if I finally got to meet Mr. President and upon walking up to him, I held my arms out and said, hey, Georgie, and went in for a hug? Yeah, what would you think if I tried to give a high five to POTUS or to pound him? What would you think if I was kind of in an offhanded manner, just said, hey, kind of responding to a text message or something? It doesn't matter what you think about President number 43, I'm telling you that if I were to act overly familiar, super casual around him, we would all feel pretty uncomfortable. What I actually did, dressed in the nicest suit that I had, was kind of sheepishly walk up to him and shake his hand and smile at him and thank him for his leadership. We posed for a picture, and I walked on my way. And I've not washed this hand since. (laughs) Here's the simple point that I want to drive home today, all right? Our spiritual growth is directly dependent on the degree to which we respect and are in awe of the person that enables that growth, that is God the Spirit. If we're overly familiar or too comfortable with the incredible reality of God on the inside, then we've already short-circuited our growth in holiness. However, If we're regularly in joyful relation to the one who transforms us, then we'll grow by his grace. So have you ever met someone famous before? If you're a Christian, then the answer is yes. So how do you feel? How do you act? What do you say around God the Spirit? This is the final and fifth week of our series, Holy Spirit, God on the Inside. We've considered a number of things that the Holy Spirit of God does, things like guaranteeing us in salvation, empowering us with gifts, especially speaking gifts like prophecy and tongues. And last week, we thought about how the Holy Spirit teaches us through the scriptures he inspired and illuminates. I've called this final week, The One Who Transforms. And I landed on the word transforms because of the role that it plays in a very important verse that could serve as the theme verse for this message. Follow along as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. Paul writes, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord Who is the Spirit? These verses touch on all of the main points that I want to develop today the presence of the Spirit, the liberating power of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit. But I also want to push forward two smaller points by way of introduction. Paul says that we're transformed into Jesus' image. This is Bible speak for what theologians call sanctification. Now, don't get turned off by the word. It's a good word that does some descriptive work for us. In a nutshell, sanctification is all about holiness. It's the work in which God, Father, Son, and Spirit, makes a Christ follower more and more like Jesus. Perhaps you'll remember that in the first week of this series, we learned that there isn't a work done by God that isn't done by all three persons of the Godhead. They're all unified in each and every work, but they also each take lead roles in certain works. So in the case of sanctification, the Father orders the plan of redemption, the Son accomplishes that redemption through His incarnate life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and the Spirit of God perfects those who benefit from that planned and accomplished redemption. His work is to apply redemption. The Spirit of God has a unique role of bringing the salvation we receive in Christ to its realization in the day-in and day-out living of our lives, as well as into the future new creation when he will perfect that work in us completely. That's sanctification. The goal is that we look more and more like Jesus. The agent is God, the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the second introductory point I want to make. At the end of verse 18, Paul says this increasing Christ-likeness comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. God the Spirit is the Lord of sanctification. It's really important to remember, as we've heard many times throughout the course of this series, that the Holy Spirit is God. One way that I've decided to actually refer to the Holy Spirit with different terminology to remind myself of this fact You'll notice on your outline that each of my main points today starts with God the Spirit rather than God's Spirit or even Holy Spirit. Because for whatever reason, when I hear these other phrases, I tend to think of the third person of of the Trinity as something that God possesses, like the Father's Spirit or something like that, rather than tending to think of the Holy Spirit as God himself. But Paul makes the point... That God the Spirit is as much Lord as God the Father is Lord and God the Son is Lord, and we do well to do whatever we need to do to get that reality deep into our thinking. This is one simple way for me to do just that, by calling him God the Spirit. So here we go, introduction done. God the Spirit is the Lord of sanctification, making us more and more like Jesus, and he does this work by means of three ongoing activities. Here's the first one. God the Spirit dwells. Now as my friend tells the story, it was a really honest question that led to a very honest moment and that made everybody in the room really uncomfortable. This pastor friend of mine was leading a class for new believers in Christ, and it was on the basics of the Christian faith. And they were making their way through all of these different areas of Christian faith, and they came to this one, the fact that God the Spirit indwells. And a woman asked a really great great question that a lot of us haven't asked, or if we've thought of it, we haven't just dared to ask it yet. She said, raising her hand really simply, does this mean that we're gods now? That's a really good question. You know, we, we've subtitled this series about the Holy Spirit, God on the Inside, but what do we mean when we say that God is on the inside? My guess is that a lot of us don't know what we mean when we say that God is on the inside, and we don't really know how we respond answering that question that she asked. And part of the reason that's the case is because of how casually we'll reference that God the Spirit lives inside us. We say these things, God is on the inside, or God's Spirit lives in me, without a ton of thought or weight attached. Now, rest assured, we're right to say this because it's true, but we need to know what we're saying, and more importantly, we need the reality of the indwelling Spirit of God to affect our lives. So in short, the fact that God the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, indwells Christ followers should unsettle us. If you're not unsettled by this, then we're just not talking about the same person. A brief foray through the Bible should help unsettle our comfort a little bit. I'm sure you're aware of the many, many places in the Bible where people encounter God and they respond either rightly or wrongly to him. Let me give you just a few After delivering the people of Israel from Pharaoh in Egypt, God, through Moses, leads the people to Mount Sinai. And when he spoke to them from the mountain, they were so overwhelmed with the loudness of his voice and the fire and the smoke coming forth from the mountain, signaling his presence, that they freaked out and they asked Moses, please, please, don't let God talk to us anymore. You go do the talking for us. They just couldn't handle God's presence. A little later, when the people settled in the land of Israel, God gave them plans for the tabernacle and designated a place in it called the Holy of Holies. This was the place where God himself would dwell. Once a year, the high priest would enter this sacred space in order to atone for the people's sins, and he would spend days cleansing himself physically and days cleansing himself spiritually, confessing sin in order to be prepared for this meeting with Almighty God. Years later, when the temple is built, Solomon dedicates it, and upon doing so, God's glory descends on the space, and the cloud of God's glory is so thick that the priests are unable to perform their duties. They freak out and run out of the place. And Solomon does exactly what he should have done. He gets down on his knees, and then he spreads his hands out before God, and he just begins praying and worshiping him. Of course, we can't neglect to mention Isaiah's vision of God on his throne, high and lifted up in heaven. Creatures around his throne constantly saying, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah falls flat on his face, even as God graciously commissions him and forgives him and shows him mercy. When Jesus is transfigured before the disciples, they have the same response, awe and the desire for more and more of the glorified Son of God. John, the author of Revelation, is encountered by this glorified, risen Jesus in all of his glory, and he falls down as though dead, and he receives the gracious hand of Jesus, assuring him of God's grace. One more. This grisly one related directly to God the Spirit. When Ananias and Sapphira bring only part of the money that they've committed to God, but lie and say that it's the entire amount. Peter accuses them of lying to the Holy Spirit, and both of their lives are taken on the spot. That's just seven of the many, many examples that hopefully make the unsettling point. The writer of Hebrews, echoing the Old Testament, says that God is a consuming fire. His fire both warms with great comfort, but it also purges in judgment. So here's my point. You know, whatever we think we're talking about when we talk about God on the inside, we must recognize that it's God that's on the inside. This is no trifling matter. The question is, though, where do we get this notion that God is on the inside at all? If you answer the Bible, that's a good answer. If you have one with you, you can feel free to turn to our first passage for today, 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 20. And the money verse in this passage comes in verse 19. There Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God? That's where we derive the notion of God on the inside. But what does it mean? To answer that question, we're going to have to take the whole context into consideration. So follow along as I read verses 12 through 20. Paul quotes a couple things from the Corinthians, things that they're saying, and he's responding to them. So he begins this way. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you've received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You know, these two paragraphs combine into a hornet's nest of questions and problems, and we're gonna skip most of that stuff. I just wanna point out two key features. The context, as you clearly picked up, concerns sexual immorality. Some Corinthian Christians were, as common Roman custom would have it, engaging sexually with prostitutes and defending this as their right. Paul's move to combat this out-of-bounds sexual behavior is to closely connect spiritual life and the body, and he does so in some uncomfortably graphic ways. Paul is not afraid to push the envelope in order to make his point. The picture he paints is of Jesus engaging a prostitute. Here's the logic. If you're in Christ by the Spirit and you have sex outside the bounds, then you have brought Jesus himself into that interchange. Well, this, I'm sure, created the desired effect. The Corinthians probably responded in an appalled manner. Paul! Don't you know that's super inappropriate to say that? And he just puts it right back on them by asking three questions that start with, do you not know? The implication is that their behavior would change if they knew, if they acknowledged, if they recognized, if they stopped taking for granted how intimately related they are to God in Christ by the Spirit. That intimate relationship is what leads Paul to say what he does in verse 19. I want to read it again. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? With these three phrases, he gets right to it. First, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the place where God the Spirit dwells. Second, God the Spirit is in you. And third, you've received God the Spirit when God saved you. Three phrases, one point, God the Spirit indwells you. God the Spirit is present on the inside. The reality of the indwelling Spirit of of God is the ground for sanctification. Sanctification. Knowing that God indwells us motivates our obedience. Paul goes from God on the inside directly to honor God with your body because the two are so closely linked because God the Spirit is present. Now, let me tell you, sin doesn't want us to make that connection. In fact, sin thrives on the deception of privacy. Sin convinces each and every one of us that no one is ever going to know. So gossip at work or lust at home, greedy, hoarding, coveting at the mall, jealousy in a friendship, dishonesty with your spouse, bitterness toward your parents, anger with a friend, these are all private. These are all internal things, right? No, none of this is actually private at all. You may not ever make it public, but God the Spirit is present. He is there with us. He indwells those of us that he's united to Jesus. And Paul asks, don't you know who lives inside you? Think about this for a second. Paul doesn't appeal to the fact that God is looking over your shoulder from heaven at his throne or that God knows everything, including all of our sin, because that route makes for fearful, guilty people. Paul's point is much, much deeper. His point is that you, your very you was bought with a price, united to Christ by God the Spirit who now indwells you. So his, his words are not just a smack. They are an impassioned plea to honor God with your body. They are an impassioned plea to honor the Spirit, to recognize who's in you, and to be in awe of Him. You know, in another place, Paul lists a whole bunch of sins, and smack dab in the middle he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Same message, different audience. We sadden God the Spirit. When we, united to Christ, wed him to our sin because we've lost sight of how great he is. God is on the inside. Is this unsettling to you? It should be unsettling. This discomfort should motivate our grateful obedience. God the, God the Spirit is present in dwelling us So, Paul says, Honor God with your bodies. Honor God with your obedience. God the Spirit indwells. Number two, God the Spirit liberates. In his book, Hidden in Plain Sight, Mark Buchanan tells the story of two guys. Both of them are Christ followers. He describes the first guy as incredibly impressive. He's lean, he's sharp. He's focused. He gets tons of stuff done, doesn't make a lot of mistakes. Scripture rolls off his tongue with great accuracy. He writes, though, that his faith and virtue sour more with each passing year. He struggles with judging others and hating himself, which Buchanan calls the twin offspring of self-striving. His conclusion about this guy? He just lacks joy. The other man jumbles scripture and can't recall what book is in. He could tend to lose a few pounds, and in fact, he could be disciplined in kind of all of life. He bumbles and ambles. He forgets sometimes in mid-sentence what he's talking about, but Buchanan says he abounds with joy, and he wasn't always joyful. He was angry and self-absorbed, nearly divorcing his wife. He was a lover of self, a lover of money, but God changed him. Now, some of the difference between these two guys is due to temperament, no doubt. But the major difference is that the second guy pays attention to God the Spirit, like some people watch the market fluctuating or watch sports scores coming in. He's regularly asking, in what direction is the Spirit moving? Two men, one seeks the Spirit and the other one just tries harder. And Buchanan concludes, I want to be like the joy-filled guy. Now, I read Buchanan's account of these two guys something like 10 years ago, and I remember really resonating with his conclusion. I want to be like the joy-filled guy. In fact, I was sitting at a table with my family. It was New Year's, and we were doing resolutions, and as we were sharing this stuff, I reflected on these particular guys and said, I really wish I could be like the joyful guy, through tears articulating this, because there was a time when I was very, very joyful, And somewhere along the line, something kind of snuck in, sheer self-striving discipline. Now, I recognize full well, discipline is an important thing. In fact, it's in self-control is in the fruit of the spirit list. It indicates that this is an important deal. But what I've come to recognize is that discipline in a sustained way is not possible without God the Spirit. Here's my suspicion reflecting on my own life. Many of us in our fast-paced accomplishment culture identify more with Mr. Self-Striving in all of his exhausted following of Jesus than we do with Mr. Joy-Filled. And this is a problem. We've traded in spirit-focused growth for self-focused growth, and in the end, we short-circuit the whole thing. Paul presses this very point home in Galatians chapter 3. three. He says, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Here's the deal. God the Spirit liberates us from self-striving self-concern so that we can look to Him and live for others from the beginning to the end of the Christian life. Follow along in our next passage for today, Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And as you listen to this passage, I want you to pay attention to the liberating activity of God the Spirit. This is a life-giving passage of Scripture because Paul is drawing attention to the good news of new life in Christ. Follow along, Galatians 5, 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. There is a right way and a wrong way to read a passage like this. The wrong way is to read it in a dour key, Eeyore-like, low and mourning and heavy and guilty, because I have too much of the sin list in my life and too little of the fruit list in my life. And if you read it that way, you see too much you here. The alternative is to read this as a declaration of liberation, the keynote of which is the first line out of the gates. Brothers and sisters, you were called to be free liberated for a life of love for others and delight in God. Another quick run through the Bible will make this point. Do you know what formally captive, recently liberated people do in the Bible? They dance. Listen to this. At Mount Sinai, Moses and the elders eat a celebratory meal with God right after he gives them all of his gracious commands. They revel, they dance, they sing, and they celebrate. When the Ark of the Covenant is rescued from those nasty Philistines, the people of Israel, God's people, King David comes back with this Ark and he basically gets naked and throws this enormous huge dance party before God. In the Gospels, when Jesus heals people, Jesus, the great liberator, the crippled stand up and dance, the lame leap for joy. The same thing happens when Peter and John heal the guy in Acts chapter 3. He gets up, and the children's Sunday school song says he's dancing and jumping and praising God. Do you know what the new creation, the new heavens and earth, will be characterized by when the entire creation and all of God's people are liberated from sin and death and suffering? celebration and feasting and dancing. Do you know what happens when weary, self-striving, overwhelmed and tired people do when they hear that God the Spirit liberates and gives new life? Do you know what they do when they hear that they can stop sinning and start living obediently? Do you know what it looks like when they experience love for one another, serving one another, putting other people first? They celebrate. They experience joy. They live with deep peace because they trust God at the core of their being. Why aren't we living like this? Why aren't we experiencing this kind of joy? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? We've often short-circuited spiritual growth by thinking that we've got to make this growth happen in our own lives. You'll remember that we started our time together today by briefly looking at 2 Corinthians 3, which makes it plain that growth in Christ-likeness comes from the Spirit, which means it's not from us. We're not the source. Now, we no doubt have responsibility in all this. Notice, for example, the endless amounts of commands in Galatians 5, and these commands start with verbs that the expectation is that the hearers are going to be doing something. To be even more exact, Paul commands that Christ followers in Galatia are to walk, verse 16, and live and keep in step, in verse 25. We have a responsibility, but that so often gets twisted into self concern, anxiety, and self striving. We get more focused on self growth than on spirit focused growth in Christ likeness. What Paul is after in Galatians 5 is life lived in God the Spirit. Look again at some of the imagery that he uses in this passage to refer to the Spirit. It's all very fluid. It's all very dynamic. Being led by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, living by the Spirit, all of these peppered throughout the passage underscore the fact that God the Spirit takes the lead here. And I want to try to flesh this out to continue to put this point home by thinking about two inadequate analogies. The first is that of dancing, which makes perfectly good sense in light of what we were just talking about. You know, in a formal, skilled dance, there's typically two people, and both of them correspond to one another, actions corresponding to one another. But one person is typically taking the lead in the dance. In spiritual growth, it's the exact same way. We keep in step with the Spirit as we follow His lead, receiving instruction from Him and responding to Him. Similarly, you could imagine spiritual growth like water skiing. In one sense, the water skier is passive because things are just coming at the water skier. Whatever is thrown at him or her is just coming at them, and that's because someone is driving the boat. Someone is increasing and decreasing the speed. Somebody is steering the boat. The boat driver is in control, but again, this doesn't negate the crucial activity of the skier. He or she is responsible to figure out hand positioning and footing and to make sense of the wake and self-correct in light of the ever-changing wake. In both of these analogies, dancing and water skiing, God the Spirit is in control. He's the one producing the growth by establishing the obedience of the Christ follower. Problems arise when we try to take the lead in the dance or when we think that we can direct the boat with a rope and some skis. See, when that happens, we so fixate on ourselves that we lose sight of the greatness of God the Spirit, His power to transform us, and His desire that we be about other people, not ourselves anyway. All of this is meant to do one thing. I just want to take the pressure off You know, so that we can put energy into the real work of responding to God the Spirit as he directs us into obedience and love for other people. You know, one of the marks of a person who lives a spirit-filled, spirit-directed life is that that person is so enamored with God that they're joyful. One of the marks of a person who lives a life by the Spirit is that they love other people more than themselves. If that's not the case yet in your life, don't beat yourself up and try to commit to doing more. That would be an adventure in missing the point. Instead, humbly confess your self-striving, your neglect of God the Spirit, and ask Him to remind you of His love for you and His grace to enable your growth In obedience. God the Spirit liberates us from self-striving, self-concern so that we can live for him and for other people from the beginning to the end of the Christian life. Number three, God the Spirit fills. I received a semi-humorous text from my wife when I was writing this message on Thursday of this past week. The message uh, came in a very exasperated tone from Rachel. This is what it said. She said, pray for me. The kids are flip-flopping naps today, which means that she's obviously going to get no break. And they're both so needy. Charlotte peed all over the bathroom floor on purpose and wouldn't stop saying how funny it was and laughing. I don't know what to do with her. Now, since I watch my kids one day a week while my wife works, I am fully aware of these kinds of frustrations. And so I did what I should have done. I just stopped everything I was doing. I just started praying out loud for mercy and grace from God for those kids and for my wife. But I also, when I finished praying, started to laugh because I had this picture in my mind of Charlotte peeing on the floor, which is relatively humorous. But also what struck me as really funny is how far the reality of our life in Christ by the Spirit can seem from the daily stuff that we face at school or at work or at home or wherever. You know, Ra- Rachel's text brought me back from the incredible joy of the space created by the gospel for freedom and for joy right into contact with neediness and with struggles. And it raised a really pertinent question for me. How on earth... Do all of the normal daily stresses, frustrations, challenges, pressures, relationship difficulties, financial hardships, health struggles, how does all this stuff of our life relate to the one who is transforming us by liberating and indwelling us? The answer to that question might surprise you. Worship is the way of transformation. Worship brings coherence to our scattered and fragmented lives, and most importantly, it reshapes all of those exasperated, floor-peed-on moments into opportunities to honor God. Worship focuses our hearts on the organizing center of it all, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Flip or scroll a page or two in your Bible to the next book in the New Testament, the book of Ephesians, and follow along chapter 5, verses 15 to 20. Paul says... Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." If we're going to understand what's going on in this paragraph, then we've got to think of the paragraph as a whole. We've got to think in contrast and in context. Excuse me. And interestingly, the new NIV, updated in 2011, helps us out along these lines. The 1984 version of the NIV, which some of you probably still have, uh, had a period after the line "be filled with the Spirit." And as a result of that little tiny period, many people struggled to make the connections that Paul, without punctuation in his original Greek letter, was trying to make. So the new NIV helps us because it closely links the phrase, be filled with the Spirit with what follows, namely speaking, singing, and giving thanks. But this is still only half the story. The NIV helps us by linking the filling of the Spirit to what follows, but we have to do the work of thinking about what linking the Spirit to what comes before is really all about. So here's what's going on. Paul connects daily living, all of the stuff that I just referred to a moment ago, verse 15, with the filling of the Spirit, verse 18, and both of these things are then connected to worship, verses 19 to 20, which in this interest... Uh, this instance, excuse me, is expressed with speaking, singing and giving thanks to God in the name of Jesus. So the spirit fills us for a wise living and for worship, which we could also describe as sanctification. And all of this results in the praise of God's glory. Worship is itself part of the process of sanctification, and in fact, even more to the point, the whole purpose of God the Spirit sanctifying us is for the praise of God's glory. Now, this is the way that Paul starts off the letter to the the Ephesians. If you glance in your Bible to chapter 1, you'll see this very, very long section. It's a wonderful section where Paul outlines the way that before creation all the way to the end of time, God has set out this amazing plan to bring people to himself through his work of creation, the Son's redemption, the Spirit's perfecting work, all of this in Ephesians chapter 1, and it's all about sanctifying his people, making them holy and blameless to the praise of God's glory. That's what God's up to in the world. That's the setting within which our life stuff is placed. So when we're filled with the Spirit, we're filled for holy living and holy worship, giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, how on earth Do the normal daily stresses and frustrations and challenges and pressures and relationship difficulties and financial hardships and health struggles that all of us face relate to the one who's transforming us by indwelling and liberating us? God the Spirit fills us for worship. When we're fixated on him, the God who is for us in Christ, and we worship him, then we're able to situate the things that we face because we'll realize that God is working all of this stuff out for our sanctification. So we'll look more and more like Jesus to the praise of his glory. So in that moment, pee all over the floor or hundreds and hundreds of other ones that every one of us face day in and day out, we turn our gaze upward, seeking the spirit of God in prayer and we give thanks for everything that God brings our way, and we ask Him to help us. We worship Him in the midst of the mundane, and we clean up the pee because these things are caught up. These things are caught up in the eternal work of God the Spirit to perfect us. Every moment of life, supercharged and sacred by the filling of God the Spirit, is a moment to pause, And to worship, it's a fresh moment to recognize that we're actually standing on holy ground. God the Spirit fills us for worship, reorients us to what really matters, puts the daily stuff of our lives into perspective in worship. So as we conclude our time together today, fittingly, we're going to do so with a song of worship. And in order to do so, I want to invite the bands to come and to prepare to lead us. And as they prepare to lead us, and we prepare to give our gifts and our offerings at this time as well, I want to invite you to do something really specific as a response, not just to this message, but to the series as a whole. You know, for centuries, Christians have prayed these specific words, Come Holy Spirit, in corporate worship as a way of indicating the fact that God takes the initiative in everything, and that we're responsive, receptive to his work of perfecting us. So I'm going to read an ancient prayer to close us, and I'm going to end with the words, Come Holy Spirit. And at that time, there are going to be 30 seconds or so of quiet for you to silently pray those words yourself, or to pray about something that's been stirring up in you that God has been doing in you over these last five weeks. So, after that short pause, I'll say, Come, Holy Spirit, we'll have a short pause of time to pray, and then we'll sing a song called Lord, I Need You all together. So, please bow your heads and pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, our souls inspire, enlighten us with celestial fire. You are the anointing spirit. Creator spirit, by whose aid the world's foundations first were laid, come, Visit each of us. Come, pour your joys on us. From sin and sorrow, set us free, and make us temples worthy of thee. Come, Holy Spirit.